Okay, everybody, good morning. We're going to get started so you guys can have your seats. Open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 4. And today we are going to go to, I wanted to do verses 6 to 13, but we're only going to do 6 and 7. God just kept on just showing me stuff in these verses, so we'll do the remain the rest of it next the following week. But as you're opening there, why don't you just join me real quick as I bow and go to the Lord in prayer. Father, Lord, we thank you so much. As we say week after week after week, Lord God, of how thankful we are because of the greatness of our salvation. Lord God, we know it is your will that we would be thankful, Lord God. Just as we know it's your will, Lord God, our sanctification, Father. And that's exactly what we're doing in a sense right now. We are working out this great salvation with fear and trembling, Lord God. Help us to me, help us to be more conformed to your Son, Father, as we live out each day that you grant us, Lord, that you give us. And Lord God, as we come together on this particular day, Lord God. <clears throat> when we're together as a body, of, body of, of believers by your grace. Father, we pray <clears throat> that you would open up our, our hearts to be able to receive your truth. I pray that you would meet each and everyone's need that is here this morning, Lord God. We know what your word says here, Father. And well, I pray that you would reveal it to us. But I also know, Lord God, that the very same word, Lord God, could speak to each and every individual here in a different way. And praise God that there's no limit to what you can do, Father. So I pray again that we would be so in tune with you and get out of the way and just allow you to do the work that only you can do, Father. So I thank you for what you will do. I thank you for what you're going to say to us through Pastor later on, Father. And again, just pray that you would continue to keep our eyes fixed and gazed upon you, the author and perfecter of our faith. So Lord, we love you and we thank you for all that you do in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so if you guys are there in chapter 4, just a quick reminder, last week we went through the first five verses and what we saw in those verses was the proper way in how we should view the leadership, the pastors of the church how they should view each other, and how the congregation themselves should also view the leaders. We also looked at the pastor's mandate, his calling, what he should do in the body of Christ with that specific spiritual gift that has been given to them. And then we also saw the end goal, and the end goal really is, is that everyone within the body of Christ, everyone within the body of Christ would come to the understanding that we are all just servants of God and stewards of the mysteries of God. All of us have that responsibility. And we learned that we are all called to be not just any kind of servant or steward, but to be faithful in everything that we do. So we're faithful to what God has shown us in Holy Scripture. And we want to do our best to uphold and live by that rule. And because we have been graciously entrusted with these two gifts, again, we want to be absolutely faithful. So this morning, we're going to see several things. 
not necessarily going to go in order as far as these headings, but we're going to see a warning against, again, keeping with the same theme, a warning against a false view of the self, okay? Uh, a warning against a false view of the Christian life. In other words, if you look at the Christian life, you might think it's just wonderful, glorious life, and it certainly is the wonderful life. But I'm not going to sit there and say that there's all this glory, and, and, I, and I want to say that in the proper context. It's a wonderful life, but if you look at the life that Christ lived, it wasn't glorious. Glamorous is probably a better word. Thank you, DJ. Okay? He was a humble servant. He was poor. Okay? He did not have a home, and yet he was... He, dis, he, he, he displayed his glory by doing the miracles that he did and doing the wonderful things that he did. And then, as an application to close, maybe boasting not in our own self and our own things that we have, but boasting in our weaknesses. So hopefully you'll see where God has me as we go through this. So let's look and read verses 6 and 7. It says, Now these things, brethren, I have figuratively applied to myself and Apollos for your sakes, so that in us you may learn not to exceed what is written, so that no one of you will become arrogant on behalf of one against the other. For who regards you as superior? And what do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? Alright. So let's take a look at this. So verse 6 is important for several reasons. So because Paul and Apollos were often the objects behind these particular sects that were being uh, made... He is going to use themselves as examples to prove that what they were doing was, of course, wrong. In other words, Paul is saying, okay, if you're going to wrongfully elevate us to a place that belongs to only Christ, look first at what we have said, the very ones who you are elevating. And the reason why is that he's saying this again, if we go back to what we were learning a few weeks ago, were the way that they were building off the one foundation, the idea of this wood, hay, and straw, those things that were worldly, not things that come from Scripture itself, right? So he's saying this because of that. The worldly wisdom that they were trying to bring into the church was of no value, okay? No value spiritually at all. So if they were paying attention, Paul is saying, if they were paying really close attention to who they're elevating, including Peter, right? They would see that they were only teaching that which had already been written, right? So if they were to stop and examine what they were teaching, they would be reminded that the totality of what they spoke was from the Word of God, namely from the Old Testament. <clears throat> and, of course, also the things that they said, which we'll see is now inscripturated. So if you look at, first thing he said in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 19, he quotes from Isaiah 20, 29, 14, which says, For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. And again, in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, Verse 19, he quotes from Job, chapter 5, verse 13, and he says, For the wisdom of this world is foolishness before God, for it is written, 
He is the one who catches the wise in their craftiness. So we can see, looking at the Old Testament, why would you want to incorporate man's wisdom thinking that it's going to help out God in any way? It doesn't seem to make any sense. So here you have the Apostle Paul writing to a Gentile church and quoting the Old Testament, which is primarily a what? A Jewish book. But that Jewish book was and still is the oracles of God for all people, His people, namely. So the very gospel that Paul and Apollos brought found, it, found its roots in the Old Testament. What does Pastor talk about all the time? Genesis 3.15, the first good news. We see it there. We see it again in Abraham, and we see it unfold throughout all of Scripture. So the very gospel, again, that Paul and Apollos brought found its roots in the Old Testament. And the apostles were the living embodiment, we can say, of the New Testament being spoken, which is now inscripturated, right? Back then, when we're reading all these books, it wasn't. Or if you're reading these letters, it was the first time that they were receiving these letters, but we know that these letters were things that Paul and Peter and any of the apostles actually, that's what they spoke during their actual ministries. So again, Paul is saying, if you were to look at us really closely, then you would see that we did the complete opposite of what you are doing. So there's obviously a disconnect here, right? Between what the Corinthian church was doing, allowing the wisdom of the world to get in, and what the very people that they were saying they were of, Paul, Apollos, and Cephas, there was a major disconnect. All Paul is saying is that all we spoke was that which we have heard from the Lord. Nothing more and nothing less. So I want you to think of the concept, real quick, of going over and beyond for someone just for a moment. You've heard that phrase. Uh, We went over and beyond for such and such a person, whatever context you might hear that phrase. When you hear that phrase, let me just ask you this question. Does that sound like something good when we say that? Going over and beyond for someone, right? Humanly speaking, when we say that, right, it's usually referring to something good. We went the distance for this brother or this sister or just anyone in general. But as I began to just look at this and start thinking and start studying and just seeing what God has been showing me as I was reading, I would say with people... That is usually something good. But with God, I'm not quite so sure. I'm not quite so sure. So, see if you can follow me. First, I would say this. Is it possible to give the Lord too much? Huh? To outgive the Lord. Is it possible to give the Lord too much? Hmm? Yes, yes. Sir? The second you give him something he didn't ask you for, and now you're doing it in your own strength, in your own glory, and it's not part of Okay, so keep that in mind with our brother just said. Okay, secondly, what God desires is for us to what? Obey. Obey. Do we agree with that? Yes. Is Pastor missing something? Okay, again, I'm going to read First Samuel again, chapter 15, verse 22, because there's much that we can learn from this. Is again, this is the prophet. Uh, not the prophet, the prophet Samuel in talking in regard to King Saul. 
doing something, as he did many times, that he was not supposed to do. Right? And that is, he gave an offering that he was not ordained to do, was even allowed to do, based on his role. So in 1 Samuel chapter 15, verse 22, this is what it says. Then Samuel said, and I'm reading this in the Holman Christian Standard Bible, I like the way it's written. Does the Lord take pleasure in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the Lord? Look, to obey is better than sacrifice. To pay attention is better than the fat of lambs. And there's so much that we can take from that verse as far as the importance of obedience. So what we learn throughout Scripture, the Old Testament and the New Testament, is that God does not want us to exceed what He says. Right? Now I want you just to think of that just for a moment. Maybe to help us to understand. Does what the holy... I'm going to give some adjectives towards God. Does what the holy, righteous, pure, and perfect God say to us lack anything? It doesn't lack anything, does it, right? Do you think God would forget something for us to do in His Word? Right? Let's just understand who we're talking about just for a moment. Has He forgotten something that His sinful and fallen people might know better than Him? Absolutely not, right? We know He doesn't lack anything, therefore we ought to do nothing more and nothing less than what He has commanded us. Because what He has commanded us is perfect and true and for our best interest. It does not lack anything. And when, and when we have done that, I used Galatians chapter 6 a few weeks ago, and when we have done that, we can have the peace and satisfaction as God's people that we did a job well-pleasing in His sight and be content with it. If we know, Lord, this is what You said to me to do. I love You. I value what You say. And I know that what you say is flawless and perfect. I'm going to do what you tell me to do. And we can have peace. We don't have to double guess and scratch our head. Did I do that which was good? And I'm not talking about our boast, boasting in ourselves. Simply as his servants, we can have peace knowing that we did what he called us to do. So, in keeping with this concept of not exceeding what is written, I want us to see several things why we should not exceed what is written. And for that, let's open to a popular verse. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse what? 16 and 17, right? You know, there's a reason why there are certain verses in the Bible... You know, we call memory verses, right? That, that, that we all know. And there's a re- they're popular for a reason. Because usually there's so much packed in those verses, right? Well, if you look at 2 Timothy chapter 3, in its original context here, Paul is writing to Timothy, his protege. Timothy, who is now pastoring the Ephesian church after... Paul left. And Timothy being a young man, ministry-wise, right, having some insecurities as a young man, especially in following after having to fill the foot uh, where Paul was. 
right? That can be a tough situation to be in. Here you got the Apostle Paul, okay, a great man of God. But guess what? Timothy was a great young man of God too. And this is what Paul says to Timothy to encourage him, to build him up in the most holy faith. He says, all Scripture is inspired by God. Now again, I've said this many times, the ESV is the best rendering of this. So if you have the ESV, what does it say? All Scripture is what? God breathed, breathed out by God, the apostas in the Greek, right? So all Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof. How am I going to know what God disapproves of if I don't know what He disapproves of? How do I know what He disapproves of? Go to the breath of God that was inscripturated for us through the Apostles says for correction. How am I going to know how to be corrected? You don't want me to do this, Lord. But my dear child, I want you to do this. To bring honor and glory to me. And for training in righteousness. We must go to the source, right? So that the man of God may be adequate or complete or perfect. Equipped for what? Every good work. That word every is important, right? That means he has given us everything that pertains to life and godliness. We are not lacking anything. This is for, again, a pastor of a church and also the same for every one of us. Okay? This is what we stand. This is where we stand. So first, we do not want to exceed what is written because it is the breath of the living God. That's what we have. And we believe it, right? And when we have this book in our hands, in our midst. It is truly the breath of God. It is His Word. We can have confidence in it. It's contrary to any other human writing. Okay? It's clearly not man's Word. It is God's Word. And then secondly, if one was to exceed what is written, it is as if you are saying that you know more than God. Now, hear me real quick. And though I do not believe that those who are guilty of this do this consciously, but rather subconsciously, right? The result in this context is that one would again become arrogant, as the scripture says. And again, I really do believe that. I don't believe when believers are guilty that they're consciously doing this. But most of the time, it's subconsciously. So thirdly, Again, I already said it, that some would not become arrogant. And the word used here for arrogant in verse that's, uh, verse 6 is the word bellows. You know what a bellows is, right? It's a device that opens up and collapses to put air in something. You've never seen those things, like an accordion type of thing, right? And again, it was used to signify being puffed up with pride. Right? Being puffed up with pride. Thinking of oneself as if you are higher and better than most or than the rest. That is never good within the body of Christ. Now, <clears throat> again, this is something that people do both consciously and subconsciously. Now, when it comes to doing something wrong, right, and the words consciously and subconsciously come up. Usually, 
which one seems to be less offensive? Hmm? Consciously or subconsciously? Subconsciously, right? And in one sense, and most of the time I would say that it's true, right? But as I was just pondering this in my mind, I saw another sense that I'm going to submit is maybe just as bad. I can say maybe worse, but I'm not quite ready to say that. I'm going to say it's just as bad in another sense. Okay, so hear me out and tell me if you understand. So let's look at what these words actually mean. Consciously means intentional and very much aware, right? Subconsciously, on the contrary, means unintentional and not aware. So if we were to really think of what is implied or implicit in this, you would see the following. For me, to not be aware of something means I am not cognizant of it, right? This means that I have no knowledge of it. I have no knowledge of it. And if I have no knowledge of something, it implies that I have never went to the source to get that knowledge. That's one sense. That's one way of looking at it. It could also mean, another way, that I have gotten so consumed with myself, and we can become so consumed with ourselves, or maybe I went to the source and very much understood what the source was saying, but I let my guard down for so long that I have forgotten about it. Have you ever found yourself in that kind of place? We know something. We know something. I've read it. I've embraced it, maybe. But then life gets in the way, right? I start letting my guard down. Maybe I start thinking, I got this. I got this. I don't need to do this anymore. I don't need to surrender myself to the Holy Spirit power. And then as time goes on, I end up forgetting So maybe I understood it, but was not diligent in keeping it, and the result was, again, I forgot. My conscience now has become seared with an iron. You know, I've talked to some brothers, some good brothers that think, that believe that, that is not referring to a believer, that a believer, his conscience can never be seared as with an iron. I don't know how he can get that interpretation. Because I'm a living witness of that, of my conscience becoming like that, because the Holy Spirit is convicting me, and I'm pushing it aside in my sinful wretchedness, right? And to the point where you forget about it. So just think about this, as I started really just thinking about this, and this is just how God was speaking to me. I hope you're seeing what I'm saying. Thinking about this in a relational sense with the people in our lives. With God, with anyone. This is true for any relationship. People subconsciously hurt other people because they have not been diligent in loving them and knowing them. Right? It happens so often. The best way for us probably maybe to see this so we can make sense is think of it in a marriage. Now, it doesn't have to be a marriage. It can be parents with their children. It can be anyone, friends. But let's just think of this in a marriage just for a moment. Because that's really the first example when God created, we saw that with Adam and Eve. Okay? Think about this in a marriage. We should know our spouses, right? 
we should constantly be learning about them. And the more we learn about them, the more we what? We know them. We know them. We know who they are. And the more we know them, the better position we will be in to help them and wherever they are, right? In other words, if you love me, you would be very much cognizant of my weaknesses and you would do anything in your power, as much as depends on you, you do anything in your power to help me. If you love me, you would know my strengths and you would seek to build me up and not tear me down. If you love me, you would know my likes, my dislikes, my emotions, my heart, whatever. Do you get the gist of what I'm saying? Right? You would know me. Right? You would know me. Now to operate in a marriage in the opposite is a recipe for what? Complete disaster. Not a healthy marriage. Maybe a divorce in the future. Not good. Right? So there is a really true sense where sinning subconsciously is just as bad. And the reason why I say this is because of what it took to get there or the lack of doing that got you there. And that would be a shame, right? Because we knew something and we let our guard down and we didn't do the very things that we should do in response to the greatness of this salvation which God has given us. Amen? So going back to the third reason why we should not exceed what is written, okay, which is so that no one would become arrogant or puffed up with pride. Then I started wanting to look at what the root of pride is. Right? Let's look at what the root of pride is. Now what is the root of pride? It can be summed up in one four-letter word. Hmm? What was that? Self. Right? The self. Now, we need to understand the self, I believe, in the context that I'm talking about. You know, we... The self can be a broad term. Okay? It can be a broad term, and we can take an unbalanced view of this. We know, and you see kind of where I'm going, that... It's not all about the self. But God tells us that we are to love our neighbor, what? As ourself. ourself. And I would say that a true love of the self, right, is to be committed to doing what God wants us to do. Right? That's truly loving ourselves. To give ourselves, put ourselves in the best position of where we can possibly be in our life would be to put ourselves under the living God. Right? And to do what He wants us to do. That is the best possible thing for us. And it's also the best possible thing for others. Right? So... Understanding the self, we are to not look at the self in the wrong lens, but we are to look at the self in the proper lens. So for that, I want you to turn real quick to Romans chapter 12. Here and again, Romans 12. 
We're going to look at verse 3 is what I want to put the emphasis on. And we know, we always quote Romans 12, 1 and 2. And we can find ourselves in any class, in any sermon, you can probably refer back to these verses because there's so much to take from them, right? Paul just gave his theology in the chapters preceding this. And then you can say from chapter 12 on, it's kind of like the book of James, right? It's almost like a proverb. It's really practically living out and seeing what that all looks like, right? So he starts out by saying that, listen, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship, which is your reasonable service, right? He's saying, listen, now that we've just went through all this that I said in Romans chapter 1 to 11, okay, the only thing acceptable as a response to what has been given to you is to give your whole selves to God. Here I am, Lord, take me. You already saved me. I've done nothing. I've earned nothing. I can't boast in anything. What will you have me do? Right? And then we can't do that, though, if we don't have a mind that is transformed. It's easy to conform to the world, but we must be transformed so that we can conform to Christ. And we do that (coughs) by our thinking being changed, and we see that in verse 2. And then in verse 3, this is what we read. For through the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think so as to have sound judgment, as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. So again, if God is telling us that the correct response to this great salvation, which was freely given to us, is to be a living sacrifice, and that that is only possible by conforming to Scripture, His Word, what He says, then the first application of that will be having the proper view of the self. And that will be several things. So let's look at that. Well, number one, we will recognize that we are not God's gift to the whole world. We're not God's gift to the whole world. Mike is not God's gift to the whole world. Maybe to his wife. Right? And that's it. That's a little Christian corny comedic uh, stuff there. Alright? We are not God's gift to the whole world. Secondly, we are not better or wiser than the rest. Or more wise. Is wiser even a word? Go with me on that. Okay? We are not better or wiser than the rest. Thirdly, we are not more loved by God. I remember, and I won't name names, I remember a brother who used to say that to me, that God favors him. Well, and God favors all of us. We're under his grace, that's what that means, and we get that. But in other words, what he was trying to imply that he favors him even above most believers. And I'm glad he thinks that God loves him, But that can't be further from the true because that's only going to produce that puffed up arrogance that we know we shouldn't have. And then fourthly, what we we do have is certainly not of our own doing. No matter where you find yourself. Especially think of someone who might be 
blessed with so many talents, okay? And there are people that are. So many talents. So many, maybe more spiritual gifts. Some have more than others. Whatever the case may be. That has nothing to do with them. Just like our height, the color of our skin, the shape of our eyes has nothing to do with anything of us. Right? So then, this takes us right into verse 7 of our text. For who regards you as superior? Or what do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? There had to be tough hearing this from the apostle. But he loves them. He cares about them. And he needs to give a hard word. He needs to say, hey, listen, this, this is what you look like right now. So if we keep the perspective that Paul is giving us, we can see that these questions, first of all, are what? What kind of questions? Rhetorical questions, right? And who is asking these questions? He's a mouthpiece for who? God, right? Does God regard you as superior? No. Do you have anything that God has not given you? No. So why would you boast in something that you know was given to you and act as if you always had it? And that's what they were doing. And guess what? We can all be guilty of the same thing. This is not godly, nor is it fitting for any saint of God. Roger Ellsworth says the following. I think that is helpful. I really like it. says, His main point is that pride is never more sickening than when it shows up in the life of the Christian. It is totally out of place there because it contradicts the teaching of grace. And I like what our brother says here concerning pride contradicting grace. I agree wholeheartedly with this statement. But just think about this. First of all, no one likes to see arrogance in anybody. Okay? No one likes to see arrogance in anybody. But even more so, not only should... It's disgusting within the body of Christ if we were to see that within each other. But it's definitely a terrible testimony for you to be out in the world, which consists of mostly non-believers, and here you are, you carry the name of God because you are a child of God. You carry the name Christian and they're witnessing an arrogant, boastful, prideful man or woman. What kind of testimony are we giving to the world? It's a terrible testimony. should have no place. Right? Have no place at all. So I agree wholeheartedly with our brother's statement And I want us just to kind of maybe build off that just a little bit. Listen to how Noah Webster defines pride in the original Webster's Dictionary. This is what our brother says. He was a devout Christian. says, Inordinate self-esteem, an unreasonable conceit of one's own superiority in talents, beauty, wealth, accomplishments, rank, or elevation in office, which manifests itself in lofty airs, distance, reserve, and often in contempt of others. And again, I like how he defines it. I think that's a good definition of what pride is. Pride 
contradicts grace because in pride, the subject is responsible for his own achievements and his own works. Right? And though, maybe humanly speaking, if I do something, okay, I, I in one sense have a sense of responsibility. I did it. No one did it for me. But we know who gave us the ability to do it was our Lord. And if it's something within spiritual thing now, God has given us the ability to do anything that is spiritual. We can't do anything of ourselves. Right? So again, perspective is so important. Works and grace as a system to attain righteousness are on two opposite sides and they never, ever intersect. Now, I'm not saying that there's no relation between grace and works. We understand that if God has given us His amazing grace, you know, faith without works is dead, right? That work should accompany it, but, I'm, but I want you just to understand what I'm saying. Works and grace as a system to attain righteousness are on two opposite sides and they never, ever, 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 ever intersect, right? They're, they never, they're infinitely on two opposite ends of the spectrum. Proverbs 16, 18 says, Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before stumbling. Pride will only lead to a man's fall. And we have numerous examples in Scripture. But let's look at what pride actually does. Well, first, I'm going to say that pride robs God of what is rightly His and only His. Right? It robs God of what is rightly His and only His. Pride robs God of His glory through grace. Not that pride takes away from His glory. Nothing can take away from the glory of God. He is glorious. We can't make Him. When we say we want to bring glory to God, it's not saying that we're making God more glorious than He already is. Right? But pride robs God of the glory through grace which He is to receive. No one that has ever been created and saved by God can boast that it was his own works that saved him. Right? Now I want us to turn real quick to the book of Romans chapter 2. I want to just read a few passages in Romans that will help us to understand what I'm trying to say and, and then we'll close. The first is Romans chapter 2. Put your, open, put your finger in Romans 2, 3, and 4. Romans 2, 3, and 4. So I just mentioned that no one has ever been created, that has ever been created and saved by God. This is going back all the way to Adam. Okay? Can boast that it was, that it was his own work that saved him. Romans chapter 2, verse 4. Reminded of his kindness. Says, or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? And kindness is linked to his mercy and grace. 
in Romans chapter 3, verses 21 to 26. We read these important verses. It says, But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe, for there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in His blood through faith. And this was to demonstrate whose righteousness? His righteousness. Because in the forbearance of God, He passed over the sins previously committed. For the demonstration, I say, of, again, His righteousness at the present time. And I love this. So that He, God, would be just. That He alone would be righteous, right? And the justifier, the one who makes righteous. Of the one who has faith in Jesus. There's boasting then in who? Who alone? In God, our Savior. Move on to Romans chapter 4. Verses 1 to 8. What shall we say then that Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, is found? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wage is not credited as favor, but as what is due, right? Work and grace. Think of how many people say that, think that God, especially when we start talking about election, and we talk about how it's unfair if someone is not elected, then, what you're, then you're not understanding what grace actually means, Right? If someone works for, some, uh, for something, it means they earned it, right? Grace is the contrary. Verse 5, But the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. And then he looks to David, who was a man under the law, a man after God's own heart, and a man who was indeed a great sinner. Just as David also speaks of the blessing on the man to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. And what are those works supposed to be based on? Works of the law, right? It says, Blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven and whose sins have been covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account. Amen. And we are those people in Christ Jesus. So what can we take as an application to this? Again, I will submit to you that rather than boasting in ourselves, we ought to boast in our weaknesses. We ought to boast in the Lord. Right? Paul is rebuking the Corinthians for a form of self-righteousness, again, that robs our Lord of what exclusively belongs to Him. 
He is just and the justifier. Right? And we are to be living witnesses of that with each other and with those who are around. In our stewardship and in our service, our aim is to leave no doubt in the minds of those around us that we stand in one thing. We stand in grace. But for the grace of God, there go I. Right? And that grace is the only one that should be, and and the object of, I'm sorry, and that grace is the only one that should be magnified, and in grace rather, typo, I completely botched this up when I typed it. When we understand grace, (laughs) when we understand grace, and again, it probably would be fitting right now just to remind us again of what grace is. We, we always say it's unmerited favor, right? But I always love when it's said, grace is getting what I don't deserve. Mercy, not getting what I deserve. Right? So I deserve hell because that's what my works earn. Right? That's what my works earn. I don't deserve heaven and yet that is given to me because of one person. Jesus Christ. So where is our boasting? Our boasting is in one man. Jesus Christ. Yes, Miss DJ. Um, you kept saying something about robbing God of His... And of course, we can't. Isn't this all about how we see God? I mean, almost everything that we've talked about this morning is uh-huh. about our man's view of God. Having it a right robs, view of Him. It's the view that's, that's robbed. It's um, when we make ourselves the center, who are we looking at? We're not looking at God. We're not seeing who He is or what He is. We're just seeing ourselves. That's all about. We become, we become our own God. We become our own God. God. We're breaking the first commandment. Robbing God of His glory. What we're doing is we're taking away the view of His glory. We're not seeing it. He hasn't lost anything. He's still God. And he's still wonderful. He's still perfect. He's still glorious. He's still holy. We haven't robbed Him of anything. Mm-hmm. But we have robbed our view. We have taken away where we should be. We're not where we should be we're not thinking Under the right God. Way. We're sure. not looking at Him as glorious. We're seeing our own glory or what we think is glory. Mm-hmm. So, and, yes. Amen. Amen. It, also, it starts with... We come here this morning, right? We come here. We don't have to be here. Mike's flesh would much rather be sleeping. In Mike's flesh, last night, I would have been doing a lot of bad things. Wouldn't be here. So again, we need, when we come here, we have, to, we have to have the right mindset, or else, why are we coming here? Again, it's just like Isaiah says in the beginning of chapter 1 in Isaiah, when he's rebuking the nation of Israel before their vain worship, not being truly cognizant of what they're doing. They're just vainly doing stuff going through the motions, and not understanding God and them. Not understanding, having a proper understanding of who He is. 
That's such a shame for us as his people that have been given so much to be thinking in the same way. So we have to have, to say it all the time, we have to have the right perspective. And when we don't have the right perspective, that's when we get into a lot of trouble. Right? So let's not get into trouble. Amen? Amen? All right? We have some time. Let's close in a word of prayer. Father, again, forgive us of our sins. Forgive me of my sin of pride at times. My sin of being puffed up. Arrogance. Whatever. By the grace of God, I am what I am. But your, the grace, your grace towards me did not prove vain. And your grace towards us did not prove vain, Lord God. We are so infinitely blessed to be your people. Lord, as I, my, as I confess my sins, as we confess our sins together in our own hearts right now, Father, we're reminded again that we are forgiven. And I, I just think again, it's just really been, Lord, sticking to me, just that one concept of what we learned a few weeks ago in the, in the couples fellowship, Lord God, the, the idea of that veil being split and how you want us you want us to come to you lord you want us you saved us you want us to come running to you and we have to come to you rightly lord god but you already made the way that there's there's no barrier that we can approach the throne of grace with boldness how great thou art and help us never to Never to forget that, Lord. So help us now to have a proper mindset when we go into worship you and to keep that mindset as we go into the world and as we go to work our jobs, Lord God. Help us to be a light in a dark world and forgive us when we fall short. And we thank you and praise you for all that you do. In Jesus' name, amen.